HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, you're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you live every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. I am uh, Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, the show where you call in and ask all sorts of cooking-related questions, whether technical or not. Uh, today, I'm in the studio with uh, Nastasha Lopez, co- cooking, cooking Issues' own hammer and special guest. We're very excited to have Jeffrey Steingarten, one of the great writers on food uh, of all times, the food critic of Vogue and a uh, personal friend of mine. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for coming. Hi, Dave. Hi, Natasha. <laughs> so, uh, actually, we have some email questions in while we're waiting for... Oh, by the way, the number to call, 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128. Uh, don't miss this opportunity to call in and ask Jeffrey a question. Uh, we had some email questions that came in, um, kind of, you know, stirring things up a little bit. Uh, Greg wants to know, uh, I'm pretty sure Jeffrey can't answer this but for contractual reasons, I guess, but he has to ask, really, how seriously do you take Iron Chef America? It seems like this is really just a faux competition, and it's a great way to get publicity for great regional chef cooking more than national expo- for, uh, for more national exposure. What, what, are you, what is your response? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Oh, I'd love to answer Oh, it. perfect. Um, I take it seriously, and I've found out about chefs uh, by being a judge. The... Um, uh, I almost never really light into a chef from outside of New York because they're usually a, a hero in their hometown. Uh, the last thing they need is to to be on the show and and have their reputation destroyed. The only people I'm really mean to are the Iron Chefs when they, uh, you know, when they do something that's not uh, not particularly good or really awful. And or, or disgusting, and um, people from out of town obviously are looking for national publicity, uh, and the good ones like David Kinch, for example. David told me that after his appearance on Iron Chef, he won. That he's never had an empty seat in his restaurant, which is, as you may know, in a very remote place in in. Um, Silicon Valley. I can't even remember the name of the town. Los, Los Gatos. The Mountain View or you know, one of those. It's in Los Gatos, isn't it? What? Isn't it Los Gatos? Yeah, it's, in my, uh, I mean, it's only remote to Jeffrey because he lives in New York and then was in Southern California, so he doesn't believe in that Northern California sort of thing. I know. So, no, I like Northern California, but this is in, um, in between. Also, Los Gatos uh, uh, means the cats. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't bode well. There's actually no reason why anyone should live in a town called the cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And by the way, on a personal note, uh, I've known Jeffrey many years, and he does take this sort of thing very seriously. There's there is very little about food that he does not take seriously. Um, that has been my been my experience. We have two callers apparently, so rather than make them wait, why don't we uh, why don't we take one of them? Okay. Hello. Hey, uh, I have a question. Um, I want to know, like, food myths 
you know, people say you can't eat oysters uh, without if a month doesn't have an R in it, and you know, white wine with fish. I was wondering if you could like dispel some of, I mean, including that oyster one, dispel or confirm some of these food myths that uh, my generation grew up with. Uh, um, I don't know what generation yours is. Actually, you sound familiar. I, I, I so. think I recognize that voice. I believe that's the one and only Patrick Martins, but I'm hey. not sure. <laughs> I figured I could call in rather than walk across the street. <laughs> I see. Well, actually, the whole idea of oysters in a month with R is only that, that you're, it is not the greatest thing to have oysters um, in... Um, you know, from warm water. That's why I'm always a little suspicious of uh, Gulf oysters. Yeah. And the Gulf oysters are also, I mean, before the oil spill and everything, they were the only ones that used to possibly give, uh, you know, contain Vibrio. And, um, right, which is why they're subjected to that ultra-high pasteuriz- uh, ultra pressure pasteurization technique, which I've never tasted whether they're any good or not after that's been done, you know, where they put it under. Yeah, I've never tasted that at all, but why bother when you can have real oysters? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Oh, now as for white wine fish, no, that's all silly. And and um, yeah, but you know, white wine doesn't generally go with steak. I mean, it's 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 generally too weak, but uh, (laughs) too soft. Uh, but red wine goes with fish. We know that, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Right. They they cut him off, so he he can no longer reply to us. But I'm sure he's agreeing. Well, I wonder whether he knows any. uh, old wives' tales uh, regarding pig jowls because I just ordered a pig jowl from him. Really? Well, I'm sure and, that'll um, go with with many different things depending on how you how you <laughs> cook it. Right? Are you going to cure it or are you going to cook it? I did cure it. Oh yeah. But only for a short time. I mean, I actually got the recipe from Carlo at Roberta's. Oh, nice. All right. Well, a you'll, very you'll have fine, to a very fine chef. You'll have to invite me to try some. Do we still have that second caller on the line? I think so. Yes. Hello. Hi. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Excellent. So I actually have uh, sort of continuing the, the non-technical question theme today. Um, young chefs and, and aspiring sommeliers are always sort of admonished to develop and expand their palates. And I figured you guys and Mr. Steingarten would be a great place to start with, what does that mean? How do you go about developing your palate? Is that an active process? Is that something that just develops over a lifetime of work? Well, you, you happen to hit one of Jeffrey's big pet peeves about people that talk about food in general is that they haven't eaten enough. So I'm going to give it to uh, Jeffrey. But I remember there was a uh, a young man who was just graduating, but from high school, he wanted to be a food writer or a chef, and it turned out that he was kosher. I mean, he had grown up kosher, and I, and he kept on wanting to know what book to read. Or, but and I told him the main thing is just eat everything you can. I mean, you've eaten so little in your life, and. Um, but it also kind of helps to eat new things with people who know. So, for example, if you go to Italy for the first time um, and you're eating food you've never had before or you've only had in America, then it kind of pays to eat with a native. I'm with a native who knows what, the, uh, you know, what he or she is doing. To, to, just so you can get a sense for what you're looking for. Now, there's also, but all of us have about the same taste buds. I mean, there are super tasters, but I don't have to worry too much about them. <laughs> but you develop your uh, your sense of taste or your uh, your ability to, you know, to distinguish, I think, uh, by putting words on it. And um, therefore, all those taste words that sound so, uh, so pretentious, well, the ones that are too abstract are obviously too pretentious. The taste words can be very, very useful. And then finally, in the, uh, in the introduction to my first book, uh, um, I described how I became a, a perfect omnivore by undergoing uh, an intense program that I had devised myself. And, uh, and it was... Um, I wanted to rid myself of all preferences. Um positive and negative so for example whenever I would go to a restaurant a good restaurant I would order only things I didn't like or that I thought I didn't like by the end of six months or a year uh, I became a a perfect omnivore with the exception of 
of insects. But I've never gotten used to eating insects and desserts in Indian restaurants. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. What about natto? Oh, no, that was easy. <laughs> but to later, about a year later, um, I, I did become a, a, I'm an absolutely perfect omnivore by, um, by, by eating some really delicious um, bamboo worms, uh, deep-fried bamboo worms uh, in Thailand. They're like French fries, except just as long as you don't look at the little face on the end. And um, but and I was in India. I was in in, the, in Punjab, and I had some home cooked uh, meals. And those desserts were just delicious when really? they're made right. So you've come to terms with the aptly named Barfi. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but th- you know, this advice from Jeffrey, I think, really, you should take this to heart. I think to become a critical cook or a critical eater. Even if you don't uh, like something, it's wise to eat enough of it so that you can at least distinguish what's going on, uh, e- even if you can't make yourself like it, as Jeffrey was able to. Um, I think we have another caller. Yes, we do. All right. Hello? Hi. Hello. My name, hi, this is Matthew. I'm actually calling you from the Los Angeles International Airport, getting ready to take a flight, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to ask you this question. Where are you going? I'm going to Sacramento today. Uh, oh, that's far away, huh? Trip, I'm sorry. <laughs> Boy, really getting out of that California uh, dreaming. Yeah. Sacramento's a really bad food city, by the way, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, you know, there is a, uh, there's a very good sushi, a very good sushi place uh, in Los Angeles, and I'm not one of those uh, you know, who thinks that Los Angeles is, is overflowing with good sushi places. Uh, um... <laughs> And, 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 but there's Sushi Mori, and he uh, grows his own uh, rice near Sacramento. Huh. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's an example of a good thing about Sacramento. S- since you're in the airport, though, well, let me get to your question before they make you get on your airplane. You got it. I, I know that you've been a guest judge on Iron Chef quite frequently. Yes. And my question is, given how much they do and the very narrow time period they have to cook and all the shortcuts they have to take, how good is the food, really? How does it compare to, say, a, a, a really good first-class restaurant in New York or Los Angeles? Good question. Well, I was surprised at how good the food was. Um, obviously, it's not always good. But almost all the time, the actual Iron Chefs, I mean, I was naturally, I was, I was skeptical about it all. Um, the main three Iron Chefs... And also Michael Simon, you know, you really want to eat what they're cooking. And, um, or most of the dishes that they're cooking. Um, and a lot of the challenges, too. Now, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, see, this is yuppie food. <laughs> but you have to understand that. It's um, the Mary Sue and, uh, and Susan, and then maybe only one other, two other Two other cooks that I've seen have actually cooked what you might call old-fashioned food. Food that's extremely good, but it's not colorful. It's not in small pieces. It's not um, intensely flavored. It's what you might call a comfort food. That doesn't go so well in Iron Chef. Um, Did they win? No, they lost, but they probably should have won. But uh, their food was very good. Um, um, I think it may have been my fault that they didn't win, actually. <laughs> I feel bad. Because hmm. they're very good cooks, and their food is just so good to eat. It doesn't I, you know, surprise you. It doesn't astound you. It's, um, well, <clears throat> so anyway, that's what I have to say. It, but you know, the food can be very good, but as I say, it is yuppie food. But, but a food that is is uh, made to kind of surprise you, um, combinations you've never had before. It's it's very hard to judge combinations you've never had before. Um, is um, for example, Wiley Dufresne, but uh, uh, when he was a challenger, he did a, a a fabulous job until dessert, right? And then there was a combination. There was a smear of uh, by the way, he's Dave's brother-in-law. And, and I was at the taping for this, so I have some hard feelings about this. So. Yes. <coughs> yes. And it was a, 
But in the dessert, there was a smear of chocolate and a smear of licorice. First of all, Jeffrey hates this sort of brushwork on a plate. He has a personal bias against it. He actually thinks it's evil. No, I actually did not have a personal bias then. I do have a personal bias now, uh, only because you have to work very hard to get that stuff off the plate into your <laughs> mouth. And, and if it's really good, why do you have to do that? Uh, you know, and the thing on this dessert, was it coffee-flavored was it coffee flavored couscous, or is that not in the dessert? It's been a long time uh, since I had... But uh, it was between Mario Batali and my brother-in-law, Wiley Dufresne, and I'm sure... I tasted none of it. I'm sure that uh, Mario's food was delicious, right? Wiley had attempted a much more kind of uh, a mental thing, a, a, tex- a textural tasting of tilapia, tilapia, which is a vile, vile, vile fish. Mario, I think, made the smart play, which is, uh, you know, cover the tilapia with all sorts of flavorful stuff. And uh, Wiley, I think, took the harder and I guess, in the end, less successful route of uh, trying to work with the fish itself. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Uh, Dave, I would agree with you if you were correct. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, man. In my scoring, in my mental scoring, because you don't actually score till the end, that Wiley was winning by a hair, because Mario is very hard to beat. I mean, he's so, but he knows how to do Iron Chef, right? or, or knew he's not on it anymore, um, because he's probably too rich. Um, <laughs> and Mario was fantastic, but, and also, but also very inventive, too. So, it, But it wasn't as though Mario... That, you know, took a a, a cubic a, a um a, a cubic centimeter of a tilapia and that covered it with spaghetti or something. It was like two cubic centimeters. Tilapia is an evil fish, and <laughs> but, but, Look, but a very bad fish. But in any event, well, wait, let's get to the nitty gritty. Remember how they killed some live tilapia on that? And I believe Mario used one of the live tilapia that was killed, served it to the other judge, and she found it inedible because it was too tough, and mm-hmm. then said that it wasn't Mario's fault; it was the fish's fault. This was cut from the airing, but basically she got served a piece of ex- basically inedible tilapia, and how did that not get put into the sto- scoring? Do you remember this? I'm sure it was. My scoring, however, didn't involve her tough fish, uh, because how do I know that it was tough? Right. Uh, well, I actually asked her for a piece. Oh, she didn't give it to you? I don't remember whether she gave no, it to I don't to remember me. that. But as I was saying, mm-hmm. Wiley was not marked out for anything else he did. His food was... Sort of, uh, compared to most of his food, conventional and delicious. I mean, after all, <laughs> but after all, he worked at, 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 at uh, but very successfully at Jean Georges. I mean, Wiley knows how to cook many kinds of food, but it was only the dessert. No one liked the dessert, so, but you know, I guess he got way marked off because of that. It was only the dessert, Dave. It was yeah. not anything else. All right, all right. Well, well. before we go to our first commercial break, I will answer we'll, one we of have the... one more caller. We have one we more. take them. Yeah. Okay, I'll take the caller, and then after the commercial break, I'll answer an email question about uh, purging clams. All right, caller? Yes. Hello? Hello. Hi. Hi. What is your question? Oh, great. I'm on the air. Yep. Excellent. Um, <laughs> I have a souffle-related question. Um, so I'm a private chef, and my main client loves it when I make a souffle. Problem with a souffle, you have to start it and finish it when you're going to serve it. So I've been trying to think of ways of pre-making it. Um, one idea I had, which I tried and failed last night, was to use an ISI thermo whip. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to pick your brain. It didn't didn't seem to work. I put about into a pint size ISI whipper, um, about four egg, egg whites, and it, it just didn't foam up. I, I foamed it with two nitrous oxide containers, and it just it didn't do anything. Um, you, well, Did you get fired? <laughs> Did I get what? No, that's, fired? That's Jeffrey for you because he, he doesn't like the whole egg white, egg white foam thing. Uh, most of the time when you're foaming... What are you saying, Dave? Yeah, I'm saying you wouldn't like just a straight egg white, egg white foam out of an ISI. Oh, no, he didn't serve it to... I, he's testing. He didn't serve it to his client. Oh, I see. Right? You didn't yeah, serve it to your no, client. No, no, no. I, I definitely didn't. Um, um, I've never foamed directly egg whites in an ISI. Have you, Jeffrey? Egg whites tried to do it directly? Yes, I've tried it. And, uh, without success or no? 
I didn't spend enough time on it. Uh, most people who do pre-made souffles use uh, a stabilizer of some sort, like a carrageenan, uh, to stabilize the foam. I think they make it somewhat traditionally and then um, stabilize it and... Uh, and then cut it into pucks and then uh, bake it and it rises up. Uh, I can think of Cuisine Solutions uh, has a commercial preparation based on uh, that uses this, and it's, I believe, based on carrageenan and xanthan gum along with the regular uh, base for a souffle. Have you done any experiments with pre-made souffles, Jeffrey, at all? Not exactly pre-made. I remember a, a long time ago, and I wish that I could remember the details, but I probably have them somewhere on my notes. There was a restaurant in Paris, uh, there is a restaurant in Paris, that called La Regalade. It was the, the uh, first of the cheap bistros. I mean, the, the uh, cheap bistros with excellent young chefs, maybe 10 years ago. And one thing he was famous for was his, uh, you know, Grand Marnier souffles. Um, and I was in the kitchen watching him, um, and he showed me how during the baking, the uh, souffle would rise to the top. Uh, and then he'd open the oven door, and it would sink, and then he'd shut the oven door again, and it would rise, and it would rise again. I, but in other words, it was not so uh, uh, delicate that you had to kind of, you know, not even talk loud around it. Right, right. And um, um, I can't remember the formula, but I'm sure there was no so-called molecular, so-called gastronomy. Right. Oh, the, the awful term. Oof. Well, look, here, a souffle is basically this. You take and you make a base that's somewhat pre-aerated, right? And then you bake it so that the, it, it inflates by, by created steam and by the uh, bubbles that are inside expanding, or right. actually both. Uh, at, when it gets hot enough, it sets. And if you're good at it, the inside stays custardy and, and delicious. So the way to make it stick around for a long time is to somehow set that initial base with something that, when it's heated, will release itself and allow itself to expand. So <clears throat> things like, uh, I've never experimented, things like gelatin, although gelatin's not freeze-thaw stable, things like carrageenan that are going to melt once they get up above about 120 degrees, which is really below uh, Fahrenheit, which is below, or 140, I have to look it up, uh, which is you know below where the maximum expansion of this thing takes place. So you want to use a thermally reversible gelling or stabilizing agent or a combination of them that will allow you to get the rise that you want <coughs> Uh, after this stuff remelts, but will gel up at a lower temperature. I, I don't have a particular recipe, but that's the that's the tactic I would take. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for your call. I th- do we have to go to a break, yeah, or we, we have time? Yeah, we have to go to. A break. All right, we, ha- we have to go to a commercial break. But please call in seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight for the uh, great Jeffrey Steingarten. Remember, he pulls no punches.
Hello, this is Dave Arnold. You're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Call in with your questions for Jeffrey Steingarten at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And before we get on to our next caller, uh, we had a question uh, come in about purging clams beforehand, presumably to get the uh, sand out. This comes from uh, Adam Lazarick, and he's a chef down in Philadelphia, and he wants to know whether any of these purging uh, methods really work, salt water, fresh water, cornmeal, etc. I would not purge a uh, clam in, in fresh water because they, uh, the ones we usually get, the hard shell clams, are uh, they're seawater sea animals. I know from experience that uh, if you put a clam in flavored uh, water, that, like uh, for instance, uh, bacon, uh, bacon and onion soup that has the same amount of salt in it as the ocean, that they will open up, eat that, and, and get flavored like delicious bacon onion soup because this is something that I've done. Um, <clears throat> and then you eat them raw, then it tastes like bacon onion soup. Uh, so I know I know that works. The, the cornmeal presumably is um, to get them to start eating uh, I don't know whether there's any truth to whether the cornmeal it really makes them eat I don't know why it would be cornmeal let's say and not flour or, or something else like that presumably some of the starch from the cornmeal is going to dissolve and make them uh, make them eat it whereas the rest sinks to the bottom maybe that's why cornmeal but I, don't, I, I wasn't able to find any specific studies but the, the premise behind putting cornmeal in the clams is to get the clams to start to start eating um, the, Dave what about snails uh, I tried getting snails to eat rosemary once to purge them out in the old uh, uh, Spanish style. Uh, I was not successful. They died and smelled god-awful, and my wife basically forbade me from ever running an experiment on snails in the bathroom again. Well, I would do it. Oh, don't do it in the bathroom. Do it in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that might get me in even more, even more trouble. But There certainly it's – in the – in the you know, classic style of paella from Valencia, you purge the snails, not just for a day, for a whole period of time on herbs so that they taste like rosemary. And um, I've never tried that, I, but I believe it. I've tried it unsuccessfully, and uh, my friend Johnny Azzini and I in London tried to fatten snails on milk, also with only marginal success. That's an old Roman uh, technique. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I have not had much luck with uh, so snail So it's your feeding. theory that the Romans and the, and the Spanish are lying? No, it's my theory that I'm bad at it. I see. And how about Johnny? He's bad, too. Yes, we're both, both, <laughs> both bad at it. You know, it uh, I guess it takes more than a tech guy and a uh, three-star pastry chef to, to fatten a snail, at least to try and relearn how to do it. But, hey, I'll try it with you sometime if, you, if you'd like. You want to try? Uh, but, uh, when I lived half the time in, in San Diego, <clears throat> uh, every once in a while, your garden would be filled with snails. Every leaf would, be, uh, would have a snail on it. Um, and so I was going to eat them. But I had to do research first on the uh, genus and everything and on whether there was going to be any uh, poison involved. And by the time I did, and then I started waiting for the next uh, snail infestation, there was no more snails. I, I happened to have a copy because I visited a snail farm, uh, you know, just north of Tuscany, uh, a copy of a book on snail farming that ha- it deals with most of the famous European snail varieties. It's written from an Italian viewpoint but translated into wretched English, so uh, I can read it. Uh, and we will go over the book together and see whether we can learn anything interesting about feeding snails. But finally, I was told that these snails were the same as the snails in Burgundy, uh, uh, France, and that there was no reason to, uh, not to eat them. Can do an article after they after. I didn't know that the Italians ate uh, land snails. Yeah, yeah. I, I went and picked a whole bunch. They uh, they had a special Etruscan variety that's still grown in very small quantity at uh, this farm called La Chocula that's uh, way up in. Uh, or however you say snail in, in Italian, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, and I went and go went to pick them. The variety is called uh, rigatella, rigatella, something like that, like round, like a pinwheel thing. And they're good, but uh, they're smaller than the bigger ones that you get in Burgundy. They're a lot smaller snail, but they were they were good. They tasted good. Uh, do, do we have a caller or no? Yes. We have a caller. Hello. Hi, I got a question about avocado puree. All righty. Uh, the whole pit thing, that's just bogus, putting the pit in your avocado puree. Correct. That never works for me at all. Yeah, great. Uh, lime juice is what I currently use, about three quarters of a lime to one avocado, but sometimes it comes up just too acidic for me. Is there anything else I can use to 
combat the oxidation other than uh, citrus juice? Ascorbic acid, straight ascorbic acid, vitamin C from the from the. Um, <coughs> um, what, what, what am I talking about? The, the pharmacy, whatever. Make sure it doesn't have rosehip and stuff in it. Just straight ascorbic acid vitamin C has a lot more antioxidant power and a lot less of that uh, acid taste than using a lime, which is a mixture of ascorbic acid, malic acid, citric acid, and a pinch of succinic acid. So the ascorbic acid alone yeah. is going to work. Sodium, uh, what is it? Sodium metabisulfite. Is that correct, Jeffrey? Sodium metabisulfite also works. Or packing in an actual, va- uh, you know, a bag that's uh, oxygen proof. Current plastic wraps are not uh, are not very good They're oxygen not, barriers. No. no, not at all. But, but also remember that a lime of all the common citrus, uh, limes are are the most acidic. Why would you use lime? As you mean, as opposed to lemon, or yeah, yeah. Oh, I actually tried using some user and some other things, thinking that more acidic, better, but. Uh, the user can be very acidic, though. Yeah, it's it's not the acid. It's not straight acid. It's not the pH that's preserving it. It's the ascorbic acid itself, which is a, which is an antioxidant uh, uh, that is uh, actually stopping the browning from happening. So it's not it's not really that you need to make it more acidic. So you might go for a l- less acid fruit with a higher ascorbic acid balance, like lemon, or just use straight vitamin C. And a lot of people, you know, uh, when they go out to buy vitamin C, they mistakenly buy citric acid, and um, citric acid. Isn't near the <coughs> doesn't have near the antioxidant power that uh, ascorbic acid vitamin C does. Uh, Dave, can you just mash up a, a vitamin C pill? I've never done that because I think they have all sorts of other things uh, to make it into a pill form, like uh, mm-hmm. you know, like little bits of calcium and whatnot, and, uh, <coughs> chalk and all this stuff. Uh, I buy the straight straight powder, 100% vitamin C powder. Um, but I hope this answers your question. Thank you. And uh, we have another caller apparently for yes. coming in. Hello. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, love the show. Uh, my name is Jason, calling from Brooklyn. Hey, Jason. Uh, I was calling, I have a question. I'm into juicing and making smoothies and stuff like that, and I've had terrible experiences in the past picking out juicers and blenders, and I was leaning towards getting one of the uh, you know, one of the expensive uh, blenders that I've seen on the Internet and, or on TV, and I was wondering if you had any suggestions on what would be the best, uh, the best method to go about uh, picking out a blender. Yeah. I will will start by saying this. Unfortunately, there is no single thing that will juice all things well. Um, It depends on what you want to juice and what kind of results you want. If the question is, should I get a VitaPrep, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Uh, Right, Jeffrey, or no? Yeah, I mean, the VitaPrep is an excellent piece of equipment, right? It's not a juicer, though. Um, You know, I I would get a champion juicer for doing things like apples and carrots, and I would get a Vita Prep for, for blending things. I mean, the ultimate juicer is a Vita Prep, a bunch of enzymes, and a uh, centrifuge. But that's a little above most people's. Uh, I, bought, um, I bought a different blender um, at some kind of restaurant show because it was on the floor. And then, uh, at these shows, you could often kind of offer them something to let you take it home. Right. Um, and it was the big wearing, which is, has the same power or a little more than the Vita Prep. Um, and I've I've never found anything that it has not pulverized within seconds. The only thing you have to do, um, I, I didn't do it the first time, is to hold down the top, because otherwise it goes all over the kitchen. Well, uh, have you ever side by sided uh, compared it with the Vita Prep? No, I'd like to. Do you want to bring your? Uh, yes, I would like. I would like to do that. Uh, I mean, uh, put your Vita Prep over. Well, here here's the thing: the, the the two major blenders that I've used on the power side, I've not used Jeffrey's wearing, is the the K Tech blender and the Vita Prep blender. Uh, you know, look. When you're talking about blending, there's there's two main things that you're worried about. One is the tip speed of the blades as they spin around, because that is what's going to determine how much force is applied to your product. The other thing is, uh, presumably, the sharpness of the blades might matter for some for some applications. And then the one that's not looked at a lot, where Vita Prep actually kind of falls flat sometimes, is in the pitcher design. You want you want good movement of the product through the blades. Otherwise, you have uh, problems with improper mixing and also cavitation where you get you know big pockets of air where the blades aren't hitting things so these are the three main things you want to look for in a blender uh you know and and the power is basically a rating that just uh, correlates somewhat with the ability to to spin a blade around and to get a high tip speed going um 
but you know they're not really great juicers. Blender's more of a blender. If you want to make juice, right, the, the choice is in the low range, I would get a couple hundred dollar champion juicer, which juices most things, won't juice wheatgrass or sugar cane. Uh, but they're great juicers. But he was talking about smoothies. Oh, smoothies. Oh, yeah, then a blender is what you want. But if you're going to make juice, I mean, when I think juice, I'm thinking like a liquid. Mm-hmm. Juice. If you have a lot of money, the Nutrafaster kind of kicks butt. That's the big one. That that that. But they're monsters, man. I uh, went to a show, uh, uh, and I, you know, and I'm used to juicing carrots and apples and stuff like that. And we all joke about how we're making our uh, forearms into you know giant monstrous forearms by jamming apples case after case into these machines and juicing them. So I walked up to this other, you know, this Nutra, I think it's Nutrafaster is the name. Tried to, you know, I thought I was going to have to force the apple through, and it basically ate the apple. I, I didn't even have time to push on it. That's how. That's how awesome it is. But that's like a $5,000 problem, right? The champion's like a $200 problem. How much is the Vitaprep? Like a $300 problem? About $400. $400? Yeah. Um, but I, I will definitely <coughs> side-by-side mine with uh, yours, Jeffrey, and we will see, we'll see what we think. The reason the K-Tech is bad... Dave, didn't you invent a hand blender? I did. I invented a hand blender that is almost as good as the VitaPrep. It has a, it's got a very high tip speed. It spins at uh, 24,000 RPM with a, quite a bit of power, and it's got a variable speed. Uh, it's got a variable speed trigger. I mean, it's pretty. It's nice. It's not. I mean, it's nice. I'm not going to lie. Can it's I have one? Uh, when when I make another batch, you will definitely be on the first list of people that will. That oh, that's will, great. That will get one. Um, <clears throat> All right, well, uh, let me answer a couple of questions. I have a, one that, uh, a quick one uh, from uh, Michael at Herbivoracious. How do you spell Herbivoracious. Herbivoracious. Uh, wants to know whether there's any transglutaminate. Uh, transglutaminate is meat glue. It glues meat together, uh, actually any proteins. Wants to know if there's any um, applications for vegetables. Uh, well, tofu can be strengthened with transglutaminase and uh, yogurts and other dairy systems can be strengthened with transglutaminase you, c- you can glue vegetables together with transglutaminase but unfortunately you have to use gelatin as a helper protein and this is something that Wiley my brother-in-law has a uh, Test it out quite a bit, where he um, cross-links gelatin to f- form noodles out of vegetables um, using transglutaminase. But unfortunately, uh, gelatin is not vegetarian. Uh, the second question he has is: Can melons be compressed without a vacuum machine? Uh, it's tough. No, you, no. yeah, no. You, you can infuse without a vacuum mm-hmm. machine, but you, uh, I have not found any way to compress uh, without a vacuum machine. Could uh, I just, uh, could I just add that um, I have. I have never eaten anything that I believe that was made with meat glue that was worth eating. Wow. I'm sorry, Dave. Wow. 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 What does that mean? How do you know that you've... How, how can you... First of all, the question is, <laughs> what, what do you mean? And secondly, how would you know whether or not meat glue was used necessarily? Because you asked them, how did you make this? In every case? If someone just hands you you a piece of meat that's not necessarily obviously been meat glued, you ask them whether it was meat glued or not? No, then I would love love to taste it. Most people don't do it. Most people use it to play tricks. For example, your and Nils Dutcher Duckin. First of all, you had a very early version of it. <laughs> first, first of all, let me just say, you had a very early version of it. Traditional turducken is an abomination because it cannot possibly be cooked right. It is not true that there is an overca- uh, okay way to overcook duck. And it's also not true that it's okay to just bathe uh, overcooked duck in fat and sauces and then pretend that you haven't overcooked it. Well, who said there was? Well, I'm presuming that you're sticking up for traditional turducken. No. No, okay. Uh, but you had a very early, early version of the turducken. better than the meat version. No. Uh, well, first of all, as I said, you had a very early version. Uh, second of all, I think you're wrong that uh, most things are used for special effects. The, the most general use for uh, meat glue is just in making uh, portions that cook evenly and nicely. I mean, that's the majority of the use. It's just it doesn't get any of the press. Well, we'll have to discuss the um, um, I can't remember the name of the cut anymore that they have at um, uh, uh, your brother-in-law's restaurant to take a flat iron. Yeah, they take out the uh, cartilage piece. Yeah, I didn't see the purpose. Uh, Because uh, although you hate this sort of thing, there are people who don't like to cut around the cartilage when they eat something. Well, it would be better not to have cartilage, but... um, Maybe the flat iron isn't the best uh, steak to eat in the first place. You don't think it tastes good? Not as good as, uh, I say, the 30 other parts of the cow. Wow. The, the, the steer. 
Yeah. Dear, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, let's <laughs> let me let me hit one more quick question because I already asked uh, one question from Greg, but not the one that he actually wanted us to answer. Um, so, uh, Greg emailed us and said, uh, can, can I talk a little more about reducing the uh, capsation level in uh, peppers, uh, hot peppers, habaneros, specifically because uh, he uses a surgical technique to remove the inside of the skin to get rid of the uh, majority of the capsation to make them not as uh, hot. Presumably he does this because habaneros have a unique and amazing floral aroma and taste. Uh, he's interested in using an enzyme that we use called uh, uh, SPL, which, or former one called Peelzyme, that kind of destroys tissue. He wants to know whether we can basically erase this layer of tissue on the inside of the pepper that has the capsation. Unfortunately, the stuff that it that in a pepper, the thing you eat is the mesocarp, right? That same mesocarp in a citrus fruit is the albedo, right? So the stuff that's dissolved by peelzyme, which is this enzyme, is the actual meat of the pepper. Now, the majority of capsation in a pepper is contained on the inside surface of the, uh, of the inside skin of the, of the pepper, inside, um, and somewhat in the veins. So you could preferentially melt this top layer away with this enzyme, but then you're going to contaminate the whole the whole pepper with it. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be helpful. I think you're much better using what you, what you do now, which is use a knife. It's just a pain in the butt. Another um, another uh, route you might take is to is to look for a source of uh, how do you pronounce it? Ahi ahi dulce ahi ahi pepper ahi a j i dulce. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Uh, the uh, <coughs> it's called it's a sweet pepper that looks like a habanero and supposedly has the aroma and taste of a of a habanero. Comes from uh, without the spice. It comes from Venezuela. I've only had three or four of them in my life, and I didn't find them to be quite as floral or, or aromatic as a habanero. But um, they're in the same ballpark, and they require no manipulation whatsoever. And I believe they are a characteristic ingredient in um, some traditional Venezuelan dishes, but I have never. Been to Venezuela, so I don't know. Uh, but also uh, Peruvian food, and yeah. um, but, but also in Ecuador in ceviche. The the ají dulce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do Do you think it has as good a, an aroma or taste as the habanero? Well, it's inter- uh, but, but I think this is a, a a very interesting question and an interesting uh, idea because. That we all know that, that different peppers have wonderful different kind of aromatic and floral tastes, uh, but you can rarely taste them because your tongue is thinking about other things. Right, right. And so I think this is a wonderful question. I don't see why it's such a, uh, Dave, what did you call it, pain in the butt? Is that yes, pain in the butt. Yeah, well, yeah. The I mean, words you used? Yes, yeah. To, uh, um, to you know, uh, in the past in, in restaurant kitchens, they used to even peel... Grapes, or um, for a, a terrible dish, yes, silver on eek, right? That's a terrible. Yes, dish. that's right. Yeah. Or um, to, uh, David Boulay, uh, 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 when he was introducing uh, a version of Joe Robichon's um, famous mashed potatoes, uh, using the hot potato, or that he was using fingerlings, uh, and they have to be peeled, and they're small. And so he had a whole, he said, he supported a whole Salvadoran family to <laughs> to peel hot potatoes um, all day long for his potato puree. And so that was a good thing, supporting them by, rather than supporting them by doing something else? Well, one of them went on to Harvard and got a Nobel Prize. This is what we call a lie. Is this true? Is no. It? Yeah, it's a lie. Yeah, uh, yeah. That seems like uh, you know Marx's dream. Someone sitting in a basement peeling tiny little potatoes constantly. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> nice, great. Anyway, the kitchen. Oh, Troy, what should he have had them do? A lot of kitchen work, though, is nice and dehumanizing. You got to get into the zen of it, right, Jeffrey? You like that sort of thing? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, but he's not peeling the outside of these peppers. It's peeling the inside. And the real problem is is that any sort of contamination, and you've just ruined your whole job. You know what I mean? That's kind of a, probably the pain. No, could it. you explain that again? So uh, he's like he's like taking and cutting the cap off and removing it carefully without cutting all the way through, popping it off, opening it, and then removing the inner skin, just presumably without it. slipping and contaminating and getting the super hot parts into the not-so-hot parts. Seems difficult. Well, he doesn't have to be 1,000% accurate, you know. I mean, he's trying to get rid of... Of of uh, much of the you know of the habaneros 
hotness in order to be able to, to to taste the floral part. It can still be a little hot. Yeah, I guess I guess you are correct. And I think the other thing to do is to buy a rotary evaporator. Oh, no, I was specifically told last week not to mention buying a rotary evaporator as, as the way Oh, I'd love to have one. I've oh, never yeah. played with yours, Well, actually. you're welcome anytime, Jeffrey. And uh, uh, here's another question that comes in, uh, Matt from Chicago, uh, and this is right up Jeffrey's alley as well. Uh, I recently bought a bag of MSG from my local Asian grocery store to experiment, but whenever I use it, I can't help to be reminded of instant soup mix. Is there a secret uh, to help using MSG to blend with other flavors? And uh, before I let Jeffrey launch into this, because this is a subject dear to his heart, uh, I will just say you're probably using too much because uh, MSG is not used in the same quantities that you would use salt or other, other, other spices. And with that, I will, I will hand it over to Jeffrey. Well, I'm afraid that I can't give you advice about, about the best way to use it. One thing is don't use it in soup. But, you know, because you'll probably be able to taste or sense it too much. But you can certainly use it in, in many other things. And, and, and just remember that glutamic acid, MSG, is, is you know, the same flavor enhancer that's been used in, um, in Asia, uh, you know, drained out of uh, giant kelp for many, many, many years. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, maybe you should try giant kelp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh. Kombu, for instance. For, you know, Kombu, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're also, and uh, I don't mean, you know, I think most of our listeners are not anti-MSG, but, you know, Jeffrey wrote, was very early uh, writer in the food world on debunking the uh, <coughs> fact that uh, you think you might have a reaction to MSG. Uh, was that in your first book? Was that in The, in the Man Who Ate Everything? Um, I believe it was um, in the first book, and it was called, it might have been the second book, and it was called... Why doesn't everybody in China have a headache? <laughs> right. Uh, and I actually did a survey in China after lunch um, asking people, do you have headaches? And what, what did they no say? No one had a headache. Uh, it's, it's very, that, that is actually an interesting... I mean, that reading the literature on MSG is uh, boring. With the, And I'll try and get it and put it up on the forum, with the exception of one article written by a scientist uh, who um, just lambastes anyone... I mean, I'll, I'll have to get it, but you know, the, 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 from a science standpoint, it's, it's somewhat ludicrous to think you have a reaction to it because um, uh, your body makes more uh, glutamic acid in your head than, uh, than you could ever normally reasonably consume because it's a neurotransmitter and you need it to live. Um, but that's, that's but a different But don't you think that the original dis- uh, discovery of the uh, Chinese restaurant syndrome, which was a phrase um, invented uh, by the New England Journal of Medicine, which uh, uh, captioned a letter from a, a mass general or Beth Israel the doctor in Boston who had this experience that he wrote a letter asking to the England Journal of Medicine asking whether anyone else had noticed this because he became flushed after a, a, a large number of bowls of wonton soup. And in those days, oh, so it was the England Journal of Medicine that thought of the idea of a Chinese restaurant syndrome. Of course, that is, is no longer believed to be politically correct. Um, even though it's the, the first discovery of it was in a Boston Chinese restaurant. Most people don't remember those days, say 1964 or so. I do. And there's no doubt that they would uh, dump huge amounts of MSG in, in wonton soup. And that if you drank it on an empty stomach, I think you probably could get a dose that, that if you're especially sensitive to it, that might affect you. Okay, well, the... The, sci- the scientific literature on uh, blood levels of, um, uh, of glutamic acid upon consumption are that if you consume uh, MSG with any sort of food at all, your blood levels don't spike. Yeah, it, but how about soup? Right. If you consume liquid only that doesn't have a lot of other stuff going on, it is true that you can get uh, a spike in, um, in, in glutaminate level in your blood that lasts uh, up to 120 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, you know, th- there is that spike. It's only when you're drinking uh, kind of only fluids, and it's only in really large doses. So I don't know how much they were adding in Boston. But then, furthermore, recent research on this has been that even at those levels, there doesn't appear to be that much of a um, 
that much I mean, or any really reaction. So that most of the studies that have shown reactions were not uh, properly blinded. They weren't, uh, you know, they, they would put MSG into a, a strongly flavored citrus beverage and assume that no one could taste the MSG. Uh, when, when studies are given of uh, MSG in gelatin capsules consumed on an empty stomach, then there doesn't appear to be a statistical um, effect. I mean, I... I've been meaning to do a post on this for a long time because I had to read like 600 pages of this crap because someone asked me a question once and I read like 600 pages of crap on MSG so I can go back and kind of redo it because it was, you know, like six months ago or something that I did the research. But, I mean, does this jibe with what you remember, Jeffrey, or no? But but, but let me ask you, David, before I ask you but why you're being so um, blasé about the dangers of carrageenan, um... There's a whole literature on that, you well, know. Well, I, I, I never... I, when was I blasé about the dangers of carrageenan? You advised someone before to to, to put the carrageenan in, in their food. Yeah, well, you advise... I mean, like, we all advise things that aren't necessarily 100%, uh, you know, it, it's a traditional ingredient, car- you know, it's a traditional ingredient. It By the way, the, the research on, on carrageenan is only that certain types of carrageenan, I believe kappa carrageenan specifically, in very in low pH systems, in very acidic systems, might have uh, some association with certain types of cancer. Um, I don't happen to use carrageenan that often. Presumably, souffles are not a super high acid system. No. no. Um, but anyway, we have a we have a we have a see, you know. But I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to get questions on that uh, on that soon. Uh, all right, <laughs> we have a caller coming in. Yeah. Hi, Dave. This is Kent Christianbaum. Hey, hey, Kent. Good to I'm speak to you. Good. Yeah. Listen, I have my own notion on what's going on with MSG, and that's that there's these persistent anecdotal reports that there is a reaction. So what could be happening? Well, one of the ways that MSG is produced is by microbial fermentation. And if the purification from the fermentation is not done properly, I think there could be other compounds in that preparation that could give, uh, you know, negative reaction. Huh. And so you think presumably that would be something that was more prevalent in the past? Yeah, I think they've gotten a lot better at the fermentation and purification techniques, and that I'm not surprised that there might have been more of these anecdotal reports back in the 1960s than there are now. Huh, that's interesting. I never, I never thought about that. By the way, for our listeners, this is Kent Kirschenbaum, one of the founders of the Experimental Cuisine Collective and professor of uh, polymer chemistry at NYU. Um, that's correct, right, Kent? Pretty much. That's it. Yeah. Um, as I was able, to, um, as I was to find out, if you write anything about MSG that is not negative, or at least if you're one of the first ones to have done that, there are hordes of people out there who are sure that their uh, children were brain damaged um, as a result of the MSG in their food. Uh, uh, the, the studies on brain damage, okay. So brain damage in MSG is a very interesting question. MSG is actually used as an agent to cause brain damage in neonatal uh, rodents. Uh, the blood-brain barrier in a neonatal rodent is nowhere near as developed as the blood-brain barrier in a human being. They fed absurd doses to these uh, rats and mice to cause brain damage on the equivalent of a full-grown man eating uh, something like 250 grams of straight MSG in a sitting on an empty stomach. Uh, The uh, similar doses were tried on neonatal monkeys, and unfortunately, and uh, they were shown not to have that brain damage uh, effect. So... I know that those studies have been thoroughly debunked, but I mean that has nothing. But that doesn't address really Kent's question on whether it's possible that there was a, a second contaminant that would cause uh, some sort of reaction back in the '60s and '70s. I don't know. Basically, we're. Uh, I, um, I believe we're talking about 1963, not necessarily the '50s. But, uh, but let me ask you, Dave. Some people objected, um, and I assume they were wrong when I was talking about how a. a um, there was an Australian study, although, again, the MSG was supplied by the Ajinomoto company, so people are always suspicious uh, because they were the largest manufacturers of MSG. Uh, anyway, there was an Australian study showing that there was more uh, glutamic acid in an Italian meal, largely because of the uh, about tomatoes and the Parmesan, mm-hmm. uh, than in a Chinese meal. Also, we know that in, in Japanese meals, there could be to more glutamic acid, and no one talks about the the um, the, the Japanese restaurant syndrome. Right. 
Uh, but is it possible that natural glutamic acid is different? I don't see how that's possible. I mean, that you know what Kent was saying that it might be contaminated, but I mean it's it's the sodium salt basically of uh, glutamic acid. It is providing by weight, I think roughly one third the sodium that table salt would. So there's extra salt, there's extra sodium involved. But uh, I don't see how it's I don't see how it's possible because it's also produced from a biological system. It's not it's not produ- It's not it's not like you're dealing with like a a, a different. Um, you know, uh, isomer or something like that. I mean, they're they're pr- both produced biologically. Um, I don't I don't see how it could possibly be different. Uh, Ken, are you still there? Do you see a way it could be different, or is Ken already gone? I I don't see how it can be different, to be honest. And as far as the salt form of it, I mean, once it hits your stomach, that that counter ion is going to be swapped out almost instantaneously. So I I agree with you, Dave, on this. That I I think it'd be hard to imagine how there could be differences in the monosodium glutamate itself. Now, there could very well be differences in the, you know, 1% or 0.1% of whatever additional material is there in the commercial MSG as opposed to what's in your your, your natural food. Right. I mean, I, I think a lot of the reaction has to do with when people eat something that's unfamiliar to them, they then have a reaction because they've eaten something unfamiliar. That, oh, I've been poisoned or I've eaten something terrible, and then they have some sort of re- reaction to it. And I think some of the studies have shown that, uh, that these effects that are linked with, uh, with, the, with the, the syndrome, we'll call it, uh, are basically just uh, the effects of eating unfamiliar foods uh, on people's psyche. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you guys think of that. Although the, the, the first report in the New England Journal of Medicine was um, um, by a, a, a doctor of a Chinese ancestry. I, I remember this, yeah. Who ate a lot of, of wonton soup in Boston all the time. So I don't think he was put he ate all, all, But did he have a headache all the time disease. or just once? No, he got flushed. He didn't have a headache. But all the time? He got very flushed. He only reported once. Uh, hmm. uh, if, I uh, went back and read that, and it also seems a little bit tongue-in-cheek and then was taken seriously by a lot of people. I mean, that, I mean that's that, why they named it Chinese Restaurant Syndrome in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Right. Dave and Ken, let me ask you a question, if I could. All right. When I was doing an article a long time ago on whether it was bad to eat salt, um... Um, I came across a number of papers showing that even those people who were salt sensitive and had a, a, a blood pressure reaction to a high salt diet did not have the same reaction to other sodium compounds. For example, a baking soda and baked goods. Uh, even though in the very old days, doctors also warned you not to eat too many baked goods hmm. because of the baking soda. But when it was tested on people, there was either no reaction or very little reaction from all the other sodium compounds. I mean, in our, in our diets now, we probably have 50 or 100 sodium compounds. Well, before I let Kent answer, because he actually probably knows what he's talking about, I will ask you this, Jeffrey, before, before we an answer is, uh, did they measure for like actual moles of sodium consumed or just weight of the compound sodium bicarbonate, which is a lot heavier than, than salt per mole? Dave, I have to assume that because they were scientists... That they measured the right thing. That, that I, I would not assume that, actually, because I've read, so, I've spent so much time reading crappy scientific papers that I can never assume that somebody has measured the proper, proper thing. Ken, what, what are your thoughts? I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, I, I agree with your jaundiced assessment of the scientific literature, and because of it, I I'd hesitate to uh, to answer what exactly was going on in those studies unless I'd read them. And, and poured over those kinds of details. Uh, uh, well, it's certainly true that in the, the popular literature and in the press releases of, of people like Mayor Bloomberg, salt and sodium are used interchangeably, and there's no attempt to get sodium out of our fast food, out of our diets. There's only an attempt to reduce the amount of salt. Right, you know, well, that... The question is, how are they going to measure it? Like, am I allowed to then add some sodium salt, uh, some sodium compound, and then add a chloride compound and end up with sodium chloride in my in my product? Is that legal? Is that going to be okay now? I mean, the whole thing about reducing salt seems to be 
I guess it's the next crazy thing that's going to happen to us, huh? Um, I think it's, it is time for all good people to uh, start to, to, uh, doing and reading more of the research and publishing it in, in letters to the New York Times and the L.A. Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, it seems, and, you know, Kent and I have talked about this a lot. Kent, you should come on the show sometime, actually. We've talked about this a lot, which is no one, uh, even scientists who, who are researching things outside of their normal field, like, like doctors, Tend not to do the tend not to do the level of research into the quality of the of the science that they're quoting when they talk about nutrition, uh, and so much of it is just crap, um, and and crap based on other crap. If you read the uh, the uh, you know the, the citations that some of these studies uh, cite, which is why whenever I research something, I end up having to read five six hundred pages because you have to burrow back and find the source of crap. And, you know, I know, Jeffrey, you do this. Uh, whenever you research something, you'll research something, and then the sites and the sites and the sites and the sites. And the, but who has the time? I mean, Jeffrey's made a, a career on being thorough. You know what I mean? But, you know, most people don't. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I took to, to back in, say, I don't know, 1992, when I, I read all, uh, all the literature as of that time, there was no doubt that it had not been shown that there was a, a, a connection but. But between eating salt and then having a blood, high blood pressure, except among, say, six percent of the population, to the population, and the head of the um, of the New York Hospital, the, uh, comprehensive hypertension study, but certainly agreed with me. He thought it wasn't as high as six percent. He's, but he thought it was you know as low as as five uh, percent. Then all of a sudden, I noticed five years ago that there was a. Oh, b- uh, b- b- by the way, there were a lot of doctors um, and scientists at that time who found it, but very threatening because their whole lives have been based on a career of advising people not to eat salt. Um, and uh, but the backlash back in those days it was not very strong. And then I noticed, starting five years ago, there was a. A huge and sudden campaign by all these people against salt. Right, and I thought we had defeated that. That's what I thought. I, I, I thought it was all gone. And then someone, some medical student, sent me, uh, you know, sent me a letter or an email, you know, that, you know, saying, Steinhardt, you know, don't you realize you're totally wrong about?" And then we had many exchanges, and they. There was a big worldwide study called the Intrasol study. In a, I can't remember exactly when it was. It was 1988 or, or 89. Um, and all over the world, the, the people took urine samples in order to determine how much salt had been eaten by that person. Um, and um, and uh, um, took their, uh, their blood pressure. They took several urine samples from each person, and they sent it to, to different laboratories uh, in Europe. But after freezing it, I mean, it was a massive, and that seems to me to have been uh, an extremely meticulous study. Uh, and there was a correlation. But after you eliminated certain, if I may call them, uh, primitive peoples <laughs> who ate no salt at all because they didn't have any salt, mm. uh, like uh, the Yanomamo Indians, who were always used as kind of but poster Indians for for this proposition, even ignoring the fact that between one third and a half of all the males in the Yanomamo society died from homicide. They have other issues. They do many other issues that I think probably came from not having enough salt. <laughs> so they packed those strange uh, narcotics into their noses because so of lack you, of salt. Okay, so if you eliminated four extremely low salt societies, if you only had kind of normal people, there was no correlation. Hmm. All right. Well, they're going to make us leave soon. Uh, oh. Br- Br- Brandon Cummins had a question on ice, which I'll address on the blog in a post coming up soon. So, Brandon, sorry to keep you waiting. But I have one question that came in from, I believe, Ben at Little Wing, and he wants to hear Jeffrey Steingarten's opinion on what makes the perfect French fry. So what we're going to do is I'm going to sign off now, and then I'm going to have Jeffrey just... Talk about the perfect French fry until they cut us off. This is Cooking Issues with Jeffrey Steingarten and Nastasha Lopez coming to you live every Tuesday. This, this week, an hour 
uh, from uh, 12 to 1. And Jeffrey, the perfect French fry, if you would. Thank you very much, David. Very enjoyable. Oh, thank you. Very enjoyable. Well, um, except... But we're not on the air anymore. No, right? we're on the air. I'm gonna, they're going to let you talk about French fries for a minute, and at a certain point, it's like the Oscars, the musical come Oh, on, I'm sorry. Know. Yeah. Well, I think the, the characteristics of, of, of the perfect French fry have been, um, I think, laid out, although it, is, it didn't take brain surgery, by Dave on, his, on the blog. Oh, thank you. Um... Uh, crisp but very friable outside not too thick um, and almost like mashed potatoes inside then there's another kind of perfect french fry which is hollow inside you don't like that no no but it can be also delicious because it is like a a a long a long rectangular baton shaped uh, Potato chip, and as we know, potato chips are as good as French fries. They're delicious. They are. Yeah. Oh, uh, I must also say, he wanted to know about uh, horse fat because he hasn't tasted. He wants to know your opinion on horse fat and fries. Oh, there's no doubt to me that horse fat, but gives you the best fries. <laughs> uh, um, and after I wrote my article, I was kind of sad about this because I had a hard, hard time getting horse fat. And then someone I knew in 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 uh, Paris, actually, it was. Um, it was Alex, uh, Alex Guarnaschelli, who's now a chef, uh, who was working as a research assistant for Patricia Wells, and, and she found in a supermarket these sticks of horse fat that were packaged like butter. In where? Paris, France. We should go. We should go. I wonder whether they're still doing that. I wonder whether it's constitutional... That Congress has passed laws against the eating of horses in America. Well, the French have always been great horse eaters. I've I've just been reminded by Nastasha the Hammer Lopez that I've forgotten to mention our sponsor. Today's excellent show was brought to you by the good folks at TechServe. TechServe is New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider, serving individual customers, creative professionals, and Fortune 100 companies. TechServe has built a solid reputation on expertise in technology, sales, and service. As a company that believes in honest and forthright business practices, TechServe is proud to sponsor Heritage Radio Network in the promotion of sustainable lifestyles, but they're for Mac-only people. Cooking Issues, and thank you to Jeffrey Steingarten. Vicious, vicious vodka Oh, you dirty rat Got me on this corner And I don't know where I'm at 